Welcome to Nurturing Nature, the official podcast for the Quarry Lane Environmental Club. My name is Romol Mitter, and I'm the moderator and host for Nurturing Nature. In this episode, we are extremely honored to have the Executive Director of the Ocean First Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to marine research, conservation, sustainability, and education. With over 35 years of experience in the field of ocean conservation, Dr. Mickey McComb-Cobza has led over 30 undersea expeditions in places around the world, ranging from Brazil to South Africa to Hong Kong. She strives to blend academic research and conservation efforts in order to inspire a new generation of future explorers. For her incredible work, Dr. Mickey McComb-Cobza frequently appears in the media on National Geographic and the Discovery Channel, and even has been featured on BBC. It is with great honor that I welcome Dr. Mickey McComb-Cobza onto this podcast. Hello, Dr. McComb-Cobza. Hello, thank you so much for having me and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, of course. So just to get started, can you give us some background on how you became interested in marine research and why you decided to begin advocating for conservation and sustainability? Sure. Um, well, I uh, first really got interested. Uh, my family took me on vacations when I was a young girl to um, the Caribbean and was really excited to spend time near the ocean. Um, I grew up in landlocked Colorado, so that was very exciting for me. And uh, then things changed a little bit. I saw the movie Jaws when I was a young girl, and I was terrified of sharks after that movie. And I started to read about sharks. And the more I read about them, the more I began to realize that they were um, not the monsters they were portrayed as in the movies and uh, on TV. And I became fascinated by them and their amazing diversity and their long history. And... uh, that really changed my life and I became uh, very passionate about telling the true story about them. I felt as if they were misrepresented and so I really wanted to set the story straight and that blended a love for the ocean and um, scuba diving and really beginning to understand how we have negatively impacted um, these beautiful spaces and these creatures that don't have a voice and so for me it's been Uh, an amazing career to try to work hard to conserve these species and their habitats and to really, I think, make people aware of what's happening out there so that they can try to be part of the solution. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear about your journey. So as you mentioned, I know that in particular, you're fascinated with sharks and have written many peer-reviewed academic papers focusing on shark behavior and biology. So can you tell us a little bit about why sharks in particular are fascinating to you and how sharks are impacted by marine debris? Sure. Um, you know, so my, you know, my academic career has um, led me down a few different roads of questions regarding sharks' physiology, um, learning uh, a little bit about their sensory biology. So how do they sense and interact with their environment? Um, sharks have all the same senses that you and I have, but they have even more. They have the electro sense, and uh, so they're really fascinating creatures to study. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I just, I find their story um, so amazing. And their story uh, really is a story now of, you know, global decline. And so that has really framed my interest in trying to promote conservation um, for them. 
can you tell us a little bit about how sharks in particular are affected by ocean acidification and various other marine problems, including plastic litter? Sure. Sorry about that. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, you know, we right now, you know, we're, we're seeing um, an unprecedented amount of plastic pollution entering the ocean uh, annually. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because plastic, as you know, never really truly breaks down. It just becomes um, smaller and smaller pieces. Uh, microplastics um, is what we call it. And so as uh, many of your uh, viewers probably know, there are gyres of microplastics and trash out in the ocean collecting um, more and more uh, plastic uh, waste and debris um, every year. And unfortunately, that becomes... Um, you know, it entangles marine life. Uh, marine life is now ingesting uh, these pieces of plastic and sharks are not immune to that. So we are finding um, microplastics in shark poop, <laughs> so their waste. Um, yeah, doing some um, testing to look at the, the fecal samples of sharks and they're finding it in, uh, in the sharks. And, you know, we also see sharks are entangled. And so uh, sometimes when we catch sharks for research, we'll pull them up and they've got binding um, uh, uh, packaging around them, plastic um, lines. Uh, there was just a video I saw not, not many days ago of a whale shark that had huge uh, uh, line uh, around its entire body dragging uh, things with it along the way. So it's really quite tragic that some of these animals are burdened with this and they can't they can't get out of it. And so they're, they're one of the few lucky ones that perhaps a diver spots and is able to help out. Um, but it is, uh, it's definitely uh, something I think when we look in the mirror, we know that we're responsible for this and that there are solutions to this problem. And, you know, right now there's so much out there in the environment that really the best way we can address this is to prevent it from getting out there because it's so challenging for us to go out there and try to remove it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think lots of people don't really think about the repercussions of their actions and especially, like you mentioned, microplastics getting into the water and our aquatic systems. And I think a major thing that people aren't aware of is like the harmful impact of glitter. I was recently reading a National Geographic article about how glitter ends up in the ocean. I think that's just so appalling that um, it has that effect on marine life. It, yeah, it does. And it, you know, and it's, it's an innocent enough thing, you know, people don't do these things on purpose, you know, balloons are another really horrible uh, product, uh, when they're released into the air, and they land and many times over the over the ocean, and they, the strings entangle animals, um, sea turtles might think they're food. So, you know, these are innocent enough actions. But you know, when we raise awareness um, about glitter and balloons, and uh, six pack rings around drinks, and even, um, you know, now, in COVID, the masks with the straps. Um, we're starting yeah. to see wildlife entanglements with masks. So, you know, it's just a small step for us to try to think, rethink, you know, what we're doing with, uh, you know, the things that we uh, put in the in the garbage can and how we do that and how we should be doing it more effectively. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I think that a major obstacle is a lack of awareness for most people because, of course, if people are aware of it, then they would take steps to um, combat that kind of problem and especially some small change like stopping the use of glitter. Um, yeah. So also, in your experience participating in and conducting various undersea expeditions, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you have seen the effects of climate change and ocean acidification directly impact marine life? So whether that be like 
coral bleaching or um, sharks or rays. Um, I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. You know, I've been diving um, since the 80s. And so I've been in the water for, for a long time. And I have seen changes um, in, in that time. And I can tell you that one of the hardest things to see is, is coral um, and, and the changes that we see, excuse me, <clears throat> in coral reefs uh, around the world. And um, not all is lost. You know, people ask me a lot, you know, is, uh, is the Great Barrier Reef dead? And it isn't. And, and in fact, one great thing about corals is they're incredibly resilient. And so there is much hope out there um, for us to, to turn it around and to make some changes. But, you know, the path that we're on now with um, acidification, you know, uh, because of, you know, we're putting too much carbon dioxide into, into the uh, atmosphere, you know, it, it's, it's really an issue. And we're seeing um, corals impacted. We're seeing hard-shelled animals impacted. They're not able to create the shells that they once did. Um, so we're seeing some, some big issues. So we see people that farm mussels. Um, they can no longer do this successfully because these animals can't create the hard shells anymore because of the changes in the very water chemistry. Um, you know, and then when we have changes in temperatures, when we have um, all of these things happening at once, it's really interesting to note that we're seeing changes in large animals, like some of the sharks. We're starting to see uh, changes in where these animals are having their pups, their babies. Uh, we're starting to see some of these populations moving from the tropics into more of the polar regions. They're following other animals that are moving. Um, so we're seeing some pretty big system-wide changes and it's happening in, uh, in, in scales that are very, very fast. And, and perhaps in the past, animals would have had enough time um, to adapt, but the changes are occurring very rapidly now. And I think that's the really, the, the most troubling part of it is the speed at which things are changing now. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit about how these various trends, like for example, the animals moving towards the poles, what kind of effect would that have on um, global feeding patterns and uh, various other um, patterns that people see in aquatic ecosystems? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to tell. And the, I think the short, honest answer is we don't really know. And, and what we do see, though, is that perhaps animals like epaulette sharks, um, little sharks that live in Australia, might be having harder times with changing conditions and temperature um, in having babies. And um, they're responding uh, in, in having um, eggs that aren't as strong as they might be otherwise. And so we're just seeing all of these changes um, that we're not really sure what they mean long term. Again, seeing these shifts in populations going um, more towards the poles, we're not really sure long term what that will mean. Um, we know from past history that when we had big migrations and big changes, it altered food webs, it altered ecosystems. And so, you know, we might very well be seeing some of those changes happening now right in front of our eyes. And again, the only reason we know this is because of, of you know, research and, uh, and, and understanding, you know, where these animals are moving and being able to keep track of that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that research really helps highlight these various patterns, including the shifting of food webs. Um, so I'd also love to hear your thoughts on how you think innovative technology can help facilitate ocean cleanup efforts and marine conservation as a whole. 
Well, I can tell you it's an exciting time uh, to be alive, that's for sure, because the technologies have allowed us to, to look into the lives of some, some of these animals in ways that we've never been able uh, before. And that means uh, we're able to, perhaps through satellite tracking, track uh, the movements of large predatory sharks um, and to begin to understand um, not only where they go and when they go, but start to answer questions about why they go. Um, why do they move into these certain areas during certain times of the year? What might that mean when we're thinking about conservation strategies? Um, we're also using new and novel technologies to tag animals that are in the deep sea um, and animals that if you bring them up to the surface, um, that would typically kill them. And so bringing them up to the surface is an unethical thing. So if you can come up with new technologies like uh, tagging sharks with a submarine, um, these are ways that we can access these animals in their habitats um, on our terms, on their terms, so that they're not harmed uh, you know, for for our purposes. Uh, it's not ethical for us to do that. So these new technologies are opening up uh, the opportunity for us to learn so much more about these animals in non-invasive ways. And at the end of the day, all of us win when we can learn more about these animals, their needs, uh, so that we can work harder on conservation. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I recently heard about an organization that was working on developing this new type of mesh to help aid um, ocean cleanup efforts where they would only capture microplastics and different kinds of plastic litter in the ocean. But then the way they actually designed it, um, they used a lot of engineering and some basic like physics principles to ensure that no animals would get caught inside the net. So I thought that was really interesting because it just shows the marvel is that engineering and innovative technology can have in this time um, and the implications that it can have for ocean cleanup. Yeah, and you know, that's a really great point is that, you know, as as we're going out into these gyres and, you know, people imagine there's these mountains of trash, you know, out in the middle of the ocean and it's not that way. You could literally go through in a boat and miss what we're talking about. It's just, you know, a soup-like layer on the top of the water that has billions and billions of tiny pieces of plastic floating in it. And, um, you know, the, the quest is, how do you clean that up? Um, do you go out there with, like you said, a large net? And if you did that, wouldn't you be capturing all of the other marine life that's in that top layer? And that's a highly productive layer in the ocean. So scooping everything up is not really a good viable option. So trying to figure out through, like you said, innovative engineering, um, trying to think through what can we, how do we attract plastic, but we leave um, phytoplankton and zooplankton and small shrimp and all of the other things that are out there um, unaffected. And this is a huge question. And again, it gets back to effort, money, um, you know, what is the purpose of this? Does, you know, is it monetarily something that people will get behind? And, you know, what are some of the other solutions to this issue? And that includes prevention, which means, you know, having people rethink their relationship to plastic. And that's a hard one, but it's not impossible. And when we start to think about how we live our daily lives and the choices we make, it, it really can add up individually. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also, like you mentioned earlier about Jaws and how um, you were under the impression that sharks were like scary creatures. So what do you think the harmful, um, the harmful effect of these kinds of misconceptions are and the implications that it can have on ocean conservation and people's willingness to go out and do ocean cleanups and um, various other outreach like that? 
I think it's the heart of the matter. I think you've you've hit it because I think uh, if people don't have a connection and they don't care and there isn't a reason uh, for someone to invest their heart um, or their time, um, they won't do it. And I think the only way that we can start to care about things is to understand them, to learn about them, to take the barriers away of not understanding. And, you know, one of the, the wonderful things that I get to do is teach courses about marine life. And next week, I'll be talking about walruses and polar bears and dispelling some of the myths about these animals and some of the struggles that they're facing to survive. And when you see animals having to overcome such odds just to survive, I think their stories become more real. And I think the urgency to try to help these animals becomes more real. And I think people are more likely um, to, to pitch in and to really do something, whether that means recommitting uh, the way that we buy, the way that we eat, um, all of those things can have massive positive impacts. Um, but again, it's a, it's a personal uh, commitment to be able to really address these things on a personal level. Yeah, I completely agree, especially with the point that vivid images, like how you were saying earlier, that people think is just like a mountain of trash, how those kinds of misconceptions and when they go out into the ocean and they don't see that, they think that those kinds of problems are actually not there when they actually are. So I think, like you said, these misconceptions can force people to not see clearly um, the actual problem that underlies our various ecosystems. So how do you think people should begin changing their mindset to towards incorporating this kind of more worldly and thinking beyond just um, the basic layer of what it means to be sustainable? You know, I think part of it comes from, um, and, and this may sound a little silly, but almost a childlike fascination with nature and a connection, a direct connection to nature. You know, we're all scientists as kids. We're all curious and we want to know. And I think um, as we grow up and become adults, some of that curiosity and time um, just to sit and to, to absorb what's happening around us um, fades away. So I think that there is a, a, a connection um, to nature that's critical for us to have. And I think that that relationship to nature is, again, what makes people have the ability to care because they have that connection. And I think once you have that care, that's when you start to see how our actions are impacting the animals. We are in the sixth mass extinction right now, and people don't know what that is. And people don't understand the magnitude of the losses that are happening all around us. And it's, it's a depressing topic sometimes. And I think that's why people push away uh, from trying to understand what's happening and possibly feeling a little guilty and not knowing because of the overwhelm of all of it what to do. But I think my organization, you know, our whole mantra is that, you know, every single one of us, if we, if we do something, even the smallest things, we're going to have an impact. And it's got to start from the individual. It's got to start from us. Um, and, you know, yes, we can have, uh, you know, global um, mandates and we can have countries make laws and changes and we absolutely have to have that. But I think individually, that's the, the beginning. And when you have an enlightened 
um, community and, and, and people, I think that's the beginning of real meaningful change. And it's, it's hard. I'm not sure the best way forward for most people, but, you know, I, I do believe that making those connections to nature is, is the most critical step. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it all starts with the individual and the individual's connection and their passion for preserving the planet. So just on that note, in order to help stay informed of various environmental issues, what sources would you recommend for our audience to use? Yeah, you know, I think there's one that's kind of uh, really fun for me that I I, uh, look into called Science Daily. And Science Daily is so much fun because it, it links to all of these articles and they're all over the map when it comes to um, topic. And a lot of it is, you know, nature based. And I think it's just really exciting to uh, learn about, you know, I was reading something about spider webs and how little spiders can go across oceans, you know, through uh, their disbursement and, you know, things that you would never think of. And they're using um, electro, uh, you know, electro fields um, in order to be able to do that. So there's just you know, there's uh, so many things I think that you can look into, um, you know, whether it's the the science daily type things, um, you know, National Geographic, some of those uh, sources that you were talking about earlier really showcase the beauty of nature, which is really where I think most people fall in love. And that's what we need more of, especially now. Um, you know, we have an opportunity, I think, to, to really turn it around and to get people to care. Yeah, and I actually have um, been to Science Daily a couple of times, and I think something that is really unique to them, or not necessarily unique, but special, I think, is that they really don't just focus on one region, but more focus on the entire globe. Like, for example, I was reading an article on Science Daily that talked about how Sweden was implementing legislature to ensure that there would be no um, gas vehicles after 2025. I think lots of countries can do um, can take inspiration from Sweden, and I think that Science Daily does a really great job of putting um, global environmental news out there for people to read all over the world. And it's really great to see that they um, kind of encompass every environmental problem, so you can really get an entire myriad of information from just one site. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I just, it's one of those sites that I always go to daily just to look and see and, you know, every day I'm just, wow, you know, I can't believe I just read that. How fascinating. And then it's something I can tell my friends and talk about and share the, share the news. It, you know, I've just uh, read so many incredible articles there that, uh, you know, I might not otherwise have found just because it's, it's challenging to keep up on all of, uh, all of the research that's happening all over the world. So those types of outlets, I think, are just fantastic. And there's so many of them. Uh, but, you know, keeping up to date on things that really matter to you is, is so important. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. McComb Kobza, for those wise words. I would now like to take questions from the audience. Our audience has sent in a few questions that I would now like to ask you. So we received a question from Joey, and he wants to know, what inspired you to become so climate-focused, and what age were you when you realized that you first wanted to work in the field of marine conservation? Yeah, you know, um, I, I definitely was inspired as a young uh, as a young child when I, I mentioned I saw Jaws when I was young, and that was really a pivotal point for me. But I really got excited about uh, climate. I think when I started to recognize, um, you know, I did uh, work with Al Gore in um, his climate reality project, and I think it just struck me how 
uh, everything is interconnected. And, you know, what we're doing in our atmosphere is being absorbed by our oceans and our oceans are really our life support system and the lungs of our planet. And so um, I think when you start to see the systems connections and how, you know, there are things that we really need to address now, um, the, the urgency to me is there. And so, uh, you know, that, that to me is, is why I'm so committed to sharing those stories and really getting people to rethink their, you know, their daily actions and how they can really make a difference. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So what do you think the role of youth in um, youth-led organizations play in contributing to a healthier aquatic environment? Well, you know, for me, youth are everything. You're the future. You are the ones that will be solving the problems um, of today. And I think to make sure that you understand what the problems are and that you have the skill set and what you need to be able to address these very large, complex um, issues you know, I, I, that to me is the most important thing that I can do as a person is to try to inspire more young people to take up the charge and to realize they can make a difference and that everything that they do can matter and should matter. And that, uh, you know, the more, uh, the more work that they do, uh, the better. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think you should definitely recognize, like you said earlier, how um, you were inspired by understanding that all Earth systems are connected. I think that's a great point, understanding environmental science and kind of how geography plays a role in uh, connecting everything together is really eye-opening for lots of people. Um, so our next question is from Vani, and she wants to know, what advice would you give us as students to help actively preserve the environment and the ocean other than just being educated and aware? Well, you know, there's one thing that a lot of people don't talk about, but I really do believe it's critical. And I think that is looking at what we eat. And I think um, when you look at the footprint of animal agriculture and the way that we are, you know, eating meat so uh, frequently. Um, these are luxury items. And when we think about our relationships to our food and uh, how some, you know, some of the, the practices that we have in creating food is environmentally quite damaging, it's really, I think, incumbent upon us to rethink what we should eat and what is a little bit of a less impact on the planet. And that's a very personal, incredibly personal road. And there are people that don't like to talk about that. Um, but I think we don't like to talk about it because it's such a big deal and can have such a direct impact towards helping our environment, helping human health. Um, and um, there's also the whole ethical part of it. So I, I really do believe that thinking about that and uh, and doing a little bit of homework on your own and introspection about that is so critical and can have such a huge impact on the environment in a positive way. Yeah, I think being a smart consumer is probably something that everyone can do and something that's so simple, but a lot of people don't talk about it or don't think about it as much. Um, so I just want to hear your thoughts on how you think culture can influence this kind of attitude towards making smart decisions in terms of what we're eating and how that affects the environment. Like, for example, um, I know in some countries it's popular to have like shark fin soup. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how these kinds of um, cultures and these kinds of traditions impact the environment. 
Sure. You know, I think um, with respect to shark fin soup, you know, unfortunately, um, the, the research animal that I have uh, grown to love over many, many decades of work is the hammerhead shark. And hammerhead sharks are critically endangered species, just like tigers and panda bears now. And that mainly is driven by demand for their fins. They have a very high fin to body ratio. And so the declines in these species have been upwards of 90% in just the last 15 years. And you can oh, imagine wow. the, the, how uh, damaging to a marine web that would be. And it's driven mainly by the demand for shark fins, which is for shark fin soup, which is an Asian delicacy, which fetches a large price um, and has driven truly a black market uh, because these animals are protected, um, but the, um, the poaching and the killing abate, and, you know, continues unabated. Um, and it's because of the demand. So when the buying stops, the killing can stop. And that is really more of an education campaign to uh, those that would consume these products for various reasons. And the main reason Asia uh, is interested in shark fin soup is it's a status symbol. It's a way for someone to say, hey, I've made it. I'm, uh, I'm you know, fairly affluent. And this is a symbol of that. And in, in the United States and other cultures, we do the same thing. Um, so it's easy to point a finger and say that a certain culture is doing things wrong when actually our culture um, is doing quite devastating uh, things to the environment as well. So I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to, again, look at our relationship to nature. Should we be killing sharks um, in a brutal and barbaric way for soup? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Should we rethink our own relationships in our own cultures on the ways, you know, think about buffalo and what we did to buffalo. There, there are just so many examples of wasteful practices that were so harmful to uh, populations of animals that have a right to survive. You know, if you think about the time, um, you know, genetically for a species to have time on the planet, you know, it's, it's a struggle. And we would certainly hope that animals like sharks that have been on the planet for over 400 million years would have a little more, uh, we would have a little more thought about their uh, demise um, and, and hope that we would not have it be ending up in soup. It just seems so silly. Yeah, I think it's so trivial that people don't think about the um, effect that the that the food webs will have if you just take out one creature from it, even if it's even if it's not even a vital creature. In this case, of course, sharks are vital, but even if they it's seemingly um, not as essential or not like a keystone species, it's still so important that each the role that each organism plays in a food web uh, really goes unnoticed, unnoticed. I think for lots of people, and they don't understand that even taking out one thing can harm a lot of uh, lot of other creatures in the ocean and just in our environment as a whole. Yeah, you know, I, someone much smarter than me once told me a story about that very point um, to really bring it home. And they said, you know, if you have a bicycle and you take some things off of that bike, you can still ride it for a while. But eventually, when you keep removing parts, at one, one point, it's not going to work anymore. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And it's, uh, we have to be careful. Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, so we received another question from Krithik, and his question is more specific to Arctic habitats. And he wants to know, in your opinion, how will Arctic biodiversity be affected by mass ice cave-ins? And what steps do you think that us as youth should be taking to forestall this? 
Well, you know, I think uh, the Arctic is really a precious place, and it's a it's a place that unfortunately is not, um, you know, uh, immune to the changes that we're seeing globally. And so now we're seeing um, sea level rise because of the melting of the of the ice caps. And you know, unfortunately, with that melting of ice, which is accelerating now, um, we're seeing animals like polar bears and walrus um, having to truly change the way that they live in order to be able to survive. And it may seem um, like a poster uh, kind of topic to talk about polar bears and their struggles, but it's true. And when you see um, walruses having to change their habitats because there's no longer ice, it's really hard. Um, and again, I think that we have to value more than just human life. We have to look at an entire ecosystem and say, we're not the only species on the planet, we share it. And we need to work harder to make this uh, work for all of us. And that means that some of the things that we're doing that we know are very harmful um, to our planet as a whole, we've really got to, because the solutions are there, we know what to do. It's just the will to change. That's all it is. And young people, are very flexible and adaptable to change. It's older people that are not. So you all are, you know, you're there. <laughs> you're marching the march and you're gonna do the changes that are necessary. We just need those changes to happen now. Yeah, and I think going back to the point that you mentioned earlier about migration patterns, I think that really plays a, a key role in answering this question because, of course, um, all these migration patterns will have to change once all these ice, uh, all these massive ice caves start to happen and as um, sea levels rise. But I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how um, Arctic animals, like aquatic animals in particular, are affected by ice caves, other than just um, having to change their migration patterns patterns and their food webs being affected? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And, I, and I'm not sure I know specifically what ice cave-ins can do. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I think is, um, is, is something to ponder is that the changes that we're seeing in melting ice and the deposition of fresh water into areas um, where we didn't see it as much before is possibly gonna to contribute to changes in the circulation of our ocean basins. Like for instance, the Gulf Stream may divert off, it may change. And these are unexpected things that might happen that we're trying to model, but there might be things that will happen that we, we couldn't even foresee. And I think for me, those are the kind of the scariest things is the things that we aren't able to think of because they're they're so unexpected and again they're tied to these physical processes um, and you know the biological processes they're all intertwined and so to see how these are going to play out with the tremendous pressure and the accelerating changes that they're under it's really it's going to be fascinating to see yeah, and I think that's a great point. A lot of people don't think about how ocean currents are affected. And I think that the point you made is a really amazing one because lots of people only focus on um, like the salinization of landforms, but they don't think about how fresh water is actually also having an impact on our oceans and how um, ice caps melting is definitely gonna contribute to a change in global ocean currents and various wind patterns and everything like that. So thank you for that perspective. 
Sure. Last quick point, you know, and I think this is really interesting is that everything changes. Evolution hasn't stopped. And so when we say, you know, uh, the, the circulation patterns are going to change and what does that mean? Honestly, it's been happening forever. And so I think what the, the, the scariest part is that for us people, we love things to stay the same. We like stability. We like things to be predictable. That's part of our DNA. And so I think when we look to the future and we're unsure and we can't model and we don't know, um, that's where it gets tricky. Um, you know, and that's where I think our comfort level um, diminishes and we start to say we don't want to think about these things because they're bigger than we can really process. And so I, I encourage everyone to just sit back and take a bigger picture look at the fact that, you know, these processes have always been occurring in the background, um, but just that right now they're accelerating uh, at, a, at a rate that, you know, we haven't seen. And that's the, that's the really interesting part. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, so we have one final question from Projanya, and she wants to know how students can directly help with the conservation of marine animals. Well, you know, there's a lot of different ways. And I think one of the things I've learned over the many years is that um, these issues, there is not a one size fits all approach. So I became a biologist because I thought that was going to be the biggest bang for the buck. And it has been amazing. But I am not the only uh, profession that is in this uh, arena to try to help uh, you know, with global climate change, species conservation, it takes a lot of different skill sets and it takes a lot of different people working together in teams from governments to biologists, to scientists, to statisticians, to politicians, um, to advocates, to filmmakers, to singers, to people that have art in their heart to bring these stories. And you, you would just be amazed, and I'm sure you know this, but a movie can change everything for a species. And that talks to the evocative ability for us people to receive stories. We're storytelling animals. And when we have a story that resonates with us, it can change everything. And so I think my advice is that there, there are so many ways and use your specific talents. Use what you're good at and you know what that is. Go out there and use that to your best ability to have the biggest impact you possibly can because you have talent and just you get your superstar on and go out there and use that unique talent that is you to make the biggest difference you can. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think lots of people only think that the way they can contribute meaningfully is by either donating to organizations or directly helping out with cleanup efforts. But I think the point you made that exploring the environmental movement from a unique perspective and by using your passions and your interests and talents to meaningfully convey an environmental message is something so unique that only someone with your capabilities can do. I sure think so. I really do. Yeah. Um, so Dr. McComb Cobza, you're such a role model and inspiration for many people across the world. I think that your views on ocean conservation are extremely valuable and your passion for spreading awareness about marine life preservation is incredibly infectious. So do you have any final words or advice that you can leave our audience with and especially youth who are looking to engage with environmentalism and marine advocacy on a deeper level? Yeah, I would just say, you know, for me, this has been a lifelong passion and I know that you're here because you share it and that's why you're here. 
And I can uh, just kind of expand on what I just had previously said, and that is, you know, each one of you um, has something very unique about you um, that you can bring to the world to help those animals that don't have a voice and to really raise awareness to your friends and family about the very things that they can do to change the world to be a better place and to be a place that more animals have the opportunity to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive. And I think really at the end of the day, that's what we're all hoping for. Um, that's what I'm hoping for. And I think um, as you get older and you have your own families, um, you'll certainly see, I think, the world in that place. You want a place that's, you know, full of diversity and uh, full of beauty. And we can, we can get there. We just have to work together. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. McComb Kobza. It was such an incredible opportunity to have you speak on our podcast and hear your amazing perspectives. Well, thank you so much for having me and for the invitation. It's been wonderful to spend some time with you and I love the questions. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too, thank you. That's a wrap on today's episode of Nurturing Nature. Thank you once again to Dr. McComb Kobza for her incredible insight and time. You can learn more about the inspiring work that Mickey McComb Kobza has done and the novel goals of the Ocean First Institute by visiting oceanfirstinstitute.org. Please check out our latest magazine edition of Wild and Wondrous and stay tuned for our future episodes of Nurturing Nature.